Good morning and welcome to Bethel Christian Fellowship. You have come to a house of prayer for all nations, a safe place where strangers become friends. So if you're a guest with us today, we just anticipate that by the end of this morning, you will no longer be a stranger to us or us to you, but you will go out a friend. Thanks for being with us, and we trust that the presence and goodness of the Lord will surround you this day. Well, this morning we are going to continue in a series that I began a couple of weeks ago on experiencing God, the seven realities. Now, when you walked in this morning, you probably got a hold of a bulletin, and on the front of the bulletin, you noticed a picture, and that picture says, A Year of Outpouring 2008. And then when you looked up at the banner here, you saw again 2000 and year, 2008, a year of outpouring. And that's our theme for this year, and there's two dimensions to that. There's the outpouring of the Lord into our lives, and then there's the outpouring then that flows through our lives. As Carlos was talking about, when we are immersed in His love, when He's poured out His love into our hearts, it unlocks something in us, and it enables us to pour out His love through us. Or Ken Manska came to me after the first service this morning, after he heard me preach, and said, you know, remember Roberta's testimony about the woman who had come and washed Jesus' feet with her tears, how Jesus said, you know, and everybody wanted to stop her from doing that, and Jesus said, no, no, you know, what she's doing is a lovely thing, and she or he who has been forgiven much will love much. I mean, when, when we get in touch with how much the Lord has forgiven us, how great His love and mercy towards us has been, it just naturally begins to pour out through our lives. You also know that for the last two and a half years or so, there has been a prophetic word that sort of has been hanging over, like a banner over the house, and that prophetic word is the word shift. And that shifting is a, means a dislodging and repositioning as well as a intensifying and accelerating. The Lord is taking us and He is shifting us. He's moving us. He's moving foundation stones into place in order that we will be ready to receive His inheritance and release this outpouring. Now, last fall and spring, through the winter and spring, we preached a number of different messages on strategic shifts. And then, a couple of months ago, or back probably in April, the Lord spoke to my heart and he said, you know, what I'm really after, what I'm really looking for is something even more than just a strategic shift. I am looking for a radical shift in this house and in my life. And I was reading something and I found out something that I'd never known before. I mean, I've certainly know the word radical. I mean, we've all heard the word radical, but there's something about that word that I did not know. And what I discovered is that the meaning of the word radical, kind of the, the, the sub-meaning, the, 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 the deepest meaning of that word radical means to return to the root. Like the radical sign in 
mathematics, when you see the radical sign, you're to find the root of that number. And so the word radical, I mean, we always think of radical as being something out there, but actually it's a deep work in here and it's a returning to the root. And I believe that at this time, in this season, the Lord is inviting us as a house here and inviting you as members of this house to return to the root and make a radical shift. And so to help reinforce that or be a part of helping us get a hold of what the Lord is saying and this returning to the root, we are looking at this series for these seven weeks on experiencing God. Now, experiencing God is much more than simply knowing about God. Remember, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago from John 17, Jesus defines what eternal life is. And what He does not say eternal life is, He doesn't say that eternal life is something that happens in the sweet by and by when you've passed from this earth and you no longer have breath in your body, and you've died. He says eternal life, in verse 3 of John 17, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life, knowing God. Not just knowing about Him, not just having a head knowledge, but actually having an experiential relationship with the living God, that is eternal life. And once we step into that place, as Jeremy gave testimony this morning, eight years ago, when the Lord appeared in a vision to him and said, come to me. There was a knowing that took place in Jeremy's spirit. And he entered in. At that moment, eight years ago tonight, he entered into eternal life. And the Lord wants to invites each of us to have that experience. To truly experience God. Now, here are those seven realities. We've looked at the first two. Two weeks ago, we looked at God is always at work around you. He's always at work. God is always at work around you. Then last week, I was preaching in Minneapolis and Tom preached here the story of Mephibosheth illustrating that God pursues a continuing love relationship with you that is real and personal. That's the second reality of experiencing God. And if you missed those messages, you can sign up for a CD in the back or you can download it off of the website www.bcfnations.org and listen and catch up and be a part and, and, and get those first two foundational reality stones placed in your heart. This morning we're going to be looking at the third reality, which is that God invites you to become involved with Him in His work. Next week, we're going to be looking at how God speaks by the Holy Spirit through the Bible, prayers, circumstances, and the church to reveal Himself, His purposes, and His ways. The week after that... Reality number five, God's invitation for you to work with Him always 
leads you to a crisis of belief that requires faith and action. Always. Reality six, you must make major adjustments or shifts in your life to join God in what He is doing. And then finally, the last Sunday of July, we will look at reality number seven, which is you come to know God by experience as you obey Him and He accomplishes His work through you. You do not come to know God by simply finding out more information about God. You're not going to come to know God by simply coming and planting your seat in a pew. You're not going to know God as a pew potato. Okay? He has more for us than that. He wants you to experience the reality of relationship with Him. Now these are simple. These are... These are basic foundational realities, but each of them begins to shift our hearts closer to His invitation to experience Him. So this morning, we're going to be looking at reality three. God invites you to become involved with Him in His work. It's a simple message but I encourage you to listen afresh with new ears to hear what the Lord would speak to you this morning. If you have your bulletin again, you can use that in the, the tear off to take sermon notes. And I would encourage you to do so because we desire to not, you know, the good soil is the soil that hears the word, retains it, and by persevering produces a good crop. I don't know about you, but it's that retaining part that sometimes trips me up. All right? So... Let's step in. God invites you to become involved in His work. And the first, the very first, the, the, the foundation of this, I mean, what's the, what's the first word in reality three? God. And so the first shift, the radical shift that needs to take place in your and my life is the radical shift into being God-centered people. Because this is not natural to us. Naturally, we are self-centered. We are self-centered. It's all about us. But Matthew 6.33 says, Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and what? Some of these things. What? All these things will be added. Now, Jesus is teaching there in Matthew 6 and He's talking to the people and He's saying, you know, you're worried about all these things, what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear. You know, all, all of these, you're consumed with life. Daily life. But what I'm telling you is if you will put Me at the center, if you will live a God-centered life, then... All of these other things in the periphery will be added to you. But if you spend all of your life seeking and striving after all of these other things, not only will you not find them, but you'll miss me, the Lord says. And you'll miss my kingdom. So He wants to move us. Move us to a God-centered life. Well, let's take a look at the contrast between a God-centered and a self-centered life. These are pretty simple, but 
Let's take a look at them. In a God-centered life, our life is focused on Him. A self-centered life, our life is focused on ourselves. Secondly, in a God-centered life, there is humbleness before God. In a self-centered life, there is the pride in self. Now, recently in prayer... Kerry Kimmel has had a very strong and powerful word that he's brought to prayer and we've been praying about out of Matthew chapter 13. If you've got your Bible, you can come with me there for a moment. And it's the parable of the weeds. And, and there's, a, there's, there's a couple of things in here that we need to capture that are directly related to what we're talking about this morning and directly related to what God is doing right now here in this house. And in our lives, I know he's doing it in my life. Matthew 13, beginning in verse 24. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And when the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. And the owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied, and the servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you're pulling the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them, let them both grow together until the harvest, and at that time I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Two things that I want you to take note of in this picture. Okay. First of all, we've got this field and weeds and wheat are growing. How do you know when wheat has reached its maturation point? How do, we, how do you know when wheat is ready to harvest? Anybody happen to know? Turns gold and the weight on the head begins, because the weight of the grain begins to tip it over and it begins to bow down. Weeds, on the other hand, don't bow down. They stay standing up. So the picture is this. When you're looking across a field that is now fully ripe and mature and ready to be harvested, the only thing that you will see Above, as you're looking over that field, the thing that you will see with your natural eyes is all of the weed standing up. The wheat is bowed down. And there is that picture of humbleness before God as opposed to pride in self. Everything in us, our pride, stands up. But the good fruit, the good grain, the harvest, the true harvest, is bowed down in humility. Now the second thing I want you to notice is what the farmer does. He sends the servants into the field and to the harvesters. He says, first collect all of the weeds and bind them up. And then burn them. And the experience for most of us in our lives, 
and I know this is true in my life, is that when the Lord draws close and He's beginning to do a harvest work in my soul, all, it seems like all of the places of pride in my life, all of those different weeds stand up at the same time. And they're all pulled together and they're all bound together and bound together they feel overwhelmingly strong. It's like, Lord, I'm a mess. Look at it. Look at all of the weight. Look at all of this. But He's binding it together and in that moment, He's ready to bring it into His fire and consume it and burn it. And His fire will consume everything that it cannot purify and will purify everything it cannot consume. So He comes to baptize us with the Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in His hand. I shared about that several months ago with the, 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 with the uh, axes at the root. The Lord is there bringing to that place of repentance where in brokenness, we bring all that He has tied up and bound together in His hand and He brings into the fire. It's His work. He's doing it. Do you catch that? Do you see that picture? Yeah. Very powerful. Very powerful picture of what the Lord is doing even now. And, and Kerry shared with me after the first service another scripture that he had received related to this. And uh, it's in... Isaiah 24, verse 21. In that day, 21 and 22, the Lord will punish the powers in the heavens above and the kings on the earth below. They will be herded together like prisoners bound in a dungeon and they will be shut up in prison and be punished after many days. He's going to herd all of those things together. And in the heavens, He makes a public spectacle of them. As it says in Colossians, He made a public spectacle of them. Triumphing over them with the cross. His goodness and grace. Hallelujah. Amen. Alright. From humbleness before God, from pride and self to humbleness before God. From uh, a God-centered life has dependence on God and His ability and provision. Instead of dependence on self and our own abilities. This was the word that Rich heard in his spirit. I'm going to take care of you. What are you worried about? But we want to do it in some, you know, he's just like the rest of us. What do I got to do now? God says, I'm already at work. Depend on me. On my ability, my provision. Deny yourself uh, exalt, uh, instead of exalting yourself. Exalting Him. I must, we must become less. He must become greater. In a God-centered life, there's holy and godly living rather than just selfish and ordinary living, which is all about, you know, just consumed with the daily cares of life rather than getting our eyes up and seeing the larger purposes of what God's doing. There's a, in a God-centered life, there's confidence in God as opposed to being, uh, our confidence being in ourselves. In a God-centered life, there is seeking God's perspective on circumstances rather than the self-centered life of embracing man's perspective on circumstances. I mean, we all look around at our lives and say, Oh my! 
And we look at our own, through our own lenses and our own eyes. But we need to, as a part of a God-centered life, we seek His perspective on our circumstances. And we focus on God and His activity rather than focusing on ourselves and our own activity. This is His invitation to you and to me. This is the invitation to experience God. To become God-centered rather than self-centered. A great illustration in the Scriptures of this is King Asa in 2 Chronicles. I'm just going to take a moment to, to mention a couple of passages. It's so interesting. This came up in one of our elders' meetings recently. Ken Holmgren had, had received uh, a word around this very thing, not knowing, of course, that that it was the very thing I believe that the Lord wants to speak as well to us corporately here and now as a part of this series. Asa, king of Judah, the, the kings, the chronicles of the kings are more than simply, I mean, they're certainly, they, they provide for us historical touch points as it relates to the people of Israel and, and their history with God. It also provides for us understanding about the purposes and ways in which God works. And they're frequently cautionary tales. Yeah. And the, the um, record of Asa is one of those. In verse 2 of chapter 14, Asa did what, did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord. And it goes on and tells all the ways and all of the good things that he did. He, you know, um, removed foreign altars and high places, smashed sacred stones, um, commanded Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, to obey His laws and commands, removed high places, built up fortified cities, built up towns. And they built and they prospered. And Asa had an army of 300,000 men and all of these brave fighting men. Then verse 9, Zerah the Cushite marched out against them with a vast army and 300 chariots and came as far as Merishah. And Asa went out to meet him and they took up battle positions in the valley of Zephthah near Merishah. Then, verse 11, underline this one in your heart. Put this in your notes. Second Chronicles 14.11 Then Asa called to the Lord his God and said, Lord, there is no one like you to help the powerless against the mighty. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rely on You. And in Your name we have come against this vast army. O Lord, You are our God. Do not let man prevail against You. And the Lord, verse 12, struck down the Cushites before Asa and Judah and the Cushites fled. So as King Asa declared his dependence on the Lord, that's a picture of that God-centered place. But go on up to verse or chapter 16. In the 36th year of Asa's reign, Basha, king of Israel, went up against Judah and fortified Ramah to prevent anyone from leaving or entering the territory of the king of Judah. And Asa took, then took the silver and gold out of his treasuries of the Lord's temple and of his own palace and sent it to Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, who was ruling in Damascus. Let there be a treaty between me and you, he said as there was between my father and your father. I'm sending you silver and gold. Break your treaty with Basha, king of Israel, so he will withdraw from me. And ben had agreed and did all of these things and they made this pact. King Asa made a pact with 
this other king to do this. And then, verse 7, at that time, Hanani the seer came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, because you relied on the king of Aram and not on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Aram has escaped from your hand. Were not the Cushites and Libyans a mighty army with great numbers of chariots and horsemen? Yet when you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord, underline this, range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. You have done a foolish thing and from now on, you will be at war. And here's the cautionary tale. Asa began centered in God, but he became centered in self. And it can happen to us. We can make the movement from God-centered to self-centered or the movement from self-centered to God-centered. The choice is ours and it's a daily decision to surrender our heart to Him, to be centered in Him. Now once that key foundational issue is settled, then the next steps can take place. The first step being that God initiates. Let me ask you a very simple question, but one that I would really like to hear an answer to this morning, interactive portion of the message. Who was it that delivered Israel out of Egypt? Who delivered Israel out of Egypt? Oh, this is a really spiritually in tune group here. Okay. Well, you've been hearing me preach about this for a bit here. Now, A lot of people, when asked that question, would say Moses. But in fact, it was God. Because it is God who initiates the very work that He's inviting us to become involved with Him in. For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith, not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we're God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. This was the case for Moses. Now you remember the story of Moses and his miraculous um, deliverance at birth and in Exodus chapter 2. And then you know how the story continues when um, in verse 11 of Exodus 2, one day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor and saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, glancing this way and that and seeing no one. He killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. The next day, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting and he asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? And the man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. And when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian where he sat down by a well. Now the story goes on. In 40 years, he's in the desert because he took things into his own hands. He was going to try to... Now, Now, how many people did Moses deliver? From the hands of the Egyptians. Nobody. Nada. Zero. But then when you go over to Exodus chapter 3, 40 years later, Moses tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. And you know the story of Moses coming to the burning bush and the Lord is there and speaks to him. And verse 7, the Lord said, I am the God, or verse 6, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. 
I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now we go over to chapter 6. Verse 5. Verse 4. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan where they lived as aliens. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving. And I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people and I'll be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hands to give to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Now, how many Israelites were delivered by God out of the hands of the Egyptians? Every single one of them. Not only that, they went out with the silver and gold of the Egyptians, their captors. What Moses could not possibly do in his own strength in a hundred lifetimes, God does in an instantaneous, incredible moment delivering His people. So, whose work is more fruitful and lasting? (laughs) Ours or God's? It's helpful to go with God's initiatives, isn't it? But here's the radical shift. You see, I don't know about you. you can, of course, I already heard you guys. You're a much more spiritual group than me. But I spend a whole lot of my time making my plans and developing my purposes and then inviting God to join me in my work. None of you do that, of course, but... Is you're more spiritual than me. But maybe part of the radical shift is to say, God, what are you initiating, doing, and how can I come alongside of what you're doing? Hmm, just a thought. All right. God reveals. We're going to walk through these very quickly here. Shared this scripture a couple of weeks ago from John 5. Jesus said to them, My Father is always at His work, to this very day, and I too am working. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing. Did you catch that? Nothing by Himself. He can only do what He sees His Father doing because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all He does. Yes, to your amazement, He will show Him even greater things than these. The Father loves the Son and shows Him. And we, in John 15, it says, you're no longer, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends because I'm showing you what I'm doing. God is interested in revealing to you what He is doing and what He has initiated in His work. Remember the principles? The Father has been working right up until now. The Father is always at His work. And the Father also has me, Jesus says, and then to us, us working as well. I do nothing in my own initiative. I watch to see what the Father is doing. I do what I see the Father is already doing. 
You see, the Father loves me and He shows me everything that He Himself is doing. So perhaps one of our prayers might be, Lord, would You take off the veils and the blinders from my eyes so that I can see what You're doing in my workplace, so that I can see what You're doing in my household, so that I can see what You're doing in my neighborhood, so that I can see what You're doing around me, so that I can join You in Your work. Get it? All right. You're supposed to say got it if you get it. All right. Get it? Thank you. All right. Now, what is God's work? We looked at that. What... So God initiates, God reveals, and God works. For God was pleased to have all of His fullness dwell in Him and through Him to reconcile all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at that last day. But I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I'm going away, Jesus said. Unless I go away, the Counselor won't come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. So what is God's work? What is God doing? He's always at work around us. Well, he is always reconciling all things to himself through the cross. He's always about that. He's always drawing and reconciling. Only God can do that. We can't do that. We cannot solve the problems of this world by all sitting around together, holding hands, and swaying and singing, we are the world, we are the people. Now, lots of you don't even remember that song. That was like when I was young, okay? That was a biggie, all right? I don't know what the song is today, but all right? It's just not going to happen by just wishing it to be so. God, this is only God can do this. He can reconcile people. Only God can reconcile creation. Only God can do these things. Only God draws people to himself. That's his work. And he does it really well. Only God causes people to seek after him. It was God that was drawing so many of you in the testimonies. That's God. He's drawing you. Only God can reveal spiritual truth. Only God can convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. These are God's work. We get to join Him in His work, but never forget that it's His work. And they're the things that only God can do. You cannot convict the people around you about sin and judgment and righteousness. You're just not going to do it. I don't care how many placards you hold up or how articulate you put together your arguments, or how intense you become, you can't do that. Only God can do that. Now, He can work, and He does choose to work through us, but when we're doing it in our own striving and effort, not so much. We're not going to draw people to Him just out of our own ability and strength and striving. Do you get this? Do you see this? It's, It's a shift. Subtle, but radical, because it's at the root. Okay. God invites. Last, last one here. God invites. So then he invites us into the work that he has initiated and revealed to us that he's doing. And he says, come along. Get involved. Be a part. 
Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us. Unbelievable. To us. The message of reconciliation. We're therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Our example here is Paul, who became, as it says, all things. He he wrote himself, he said, I've become all things to all people that some might be saved. I'm a messenger of reconciliation, participating in the work of God as he is reconciling and drawing all people and all things to himself. That's what we get to participate in. That's the part that we have as co-laborers with Christ. In His mission, we are co-missioned into His work. Do you see it? This is powerful. So we're joining Him in His work. What a wondrous thing. So what's our response? Last scripture. Our response here, Philippians chapter 2. I think this is the one that's typed at the top of your bulletin as well. Therefore, now the therefore is therefore for a reason. Therefore, you have to go back to the beginning of Philippians 2 and you read all about this. And, you know, if you have any um, fellowship with Christ, and you know, make my joy complete by being like mine. And then it goes on and talks about Christ and all that he has done. Now he laid all things down to come to us and that God exalted him. The name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Underline this. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to His good purpose. He's inviting us into His work. He is the one who even gives us the will to want to say yes. And then the ability to act it out and walk it out. It's all God from beginning to end. Do everything without complaining or arguing. Ouch. Okay. So that you may become blameless and pure. Children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. This is the invitation to to be you know you get to be a star holding out the word of life participating with him in his work that's incredible that's amazing that's what, so whatever it is that you're doing you're a star holding out you know your new job rich you're a star you get to hold out the word of life. Diana, you with all of those kids. I could never do that in a thousand years. All those daycare kids. But you're holding out to them the word of life. You're, you, can, you can reflect the, the love of God to these kids and mark them for eternity. What you do is incredibly valuable. So powerful. So much more than just kind of herding them around. You're, you're showing them the love of Christ. Isn't that amazing? Each and every one of us has that opportunity to be those stars for the Lord. 